0: Well, hello. Welcome to Village Heights in week two of Christmas chaos. Uh, I grew up in in a church um, around Christians, and it was kind of non-denominational, probably more uh, charismatic, uh, Pentecostal. If If you grew up liturgical, we were the crazy ones that you talked about. Uh, the ones that were running in the aisles and speaking in tongues and you know, all that kind of stuff, the crazy things you would see on TV. Um, I was a part of that, right? But a part of that generation in the early 90s, one of the things that they would kind of push, talk about a lot, especially amongst young people, was asking Jesus into your heart. It was a big, big deal. And so they Asked you a lot as a kid in children's church, they asked, uh, uh, in youth group, and even with adults, they, they would pose the question, Have you asked Jesus into your heart? And, and there's something about it, right? So when you do that, it's kind of solidifying something. You tell people, Oh, yeah, I asked you some heart. It's like, Okay, good. They're going to make it to heaven, right? That was kind of the, the indicator, right? The, the golden ticket idea that they got into heaven. Um, and so it was comforting for parents specifically, and grandparents when they would hear that one of the grandchildren or one of their children asked Jesus into heart, and they're like, oh, thank God. Okay. All right. We're on the right track. They made the right choice. And for me, I asked Jesus into my heart many times uh, because I kind of felt like every time I, I did something that was not the greatest decision um, or I did something selfish, I was like, <clears throat> did Jesus leave? I don't know. He might've left the party of my heart because he didn't like the party anymore. I don't know. And so I had this idea that I would constantly ask Jesus into my heart after certain events that would happen in my life because I just wanted to make sure he was still there, right? And he knew that he was still welcome, even though my actions might not have shown that. It was kind of like re-upping the membership you know, like the rewards program of getting into heaven, you know, my jewels and, and all those things in heaven. Um, it was kind of like just re-upping over him. And I'm not shaming it, okay? I'm not shaming that process. It, it just was what it was. That was the culture in that time. That was kind of what was pushed. And I get the feeling now, because I'm a parent, and I understand that feeling of wanting to know. And so with our kids, um, Hannah and I, we try not to push it, We kind of just try to let it organically happen, and we remember the time that Gage asked for the first time, you know, with the understanding that we are pastors and we're always around it. We don't have to, like, push it. It's just kind of always there, Um, but we were in the car one day, and uh, Gage asked. We just had baptisms, and to him, at that age, it was like a swimming pool for church, right? And he was like, how do I get into the swimming pool? How do I get access to that at church? And I was like, well, it's called baptism, and it's not really just for fun. It means something. He's like, well, what does it mean? I'm like, well, it's a representation of what happens on the inside, on the outside, of what when we ask Jesus into our heart. And he's like, well, how do you ask Jesus into your heart? And I'm like, well, it's real easy. And so we went through the whole process with him, but we're in the car. So I'm driving, Hannah's in the passenger seat, and he's behind us. And before we even get, Hannah's bawling by this point, you know, and, I, and trying to hold it because he, like, you want to engage and think there's something wrong. No, it's a great thing that's happening, uh, but mommy is just, you know, so touched and so we, you know, we kind of tag-teamed it, went back and forth, and then we did the prayer with them. And I remember when it happened, this calmness kind of like went over me of like, oh, good. He made the choice himself. It wasn't forced. I didn't, he, he was the one that wanted it. And it kind of like goes, oh, good, he's on the right path. And as, you know, grandparents and parents, you know, as kids grow up and they make dumb choices as we do because humans aren't perfect and we all wander at some point. And that's why we call it ourselves a, we call ourselves a community of wanderers because we all wander. Um, and you kind of, you look at them and you're like, but they did ask, right? I remember that one point uh, when they asked Jesus in their heart. So you kind of, it gives you confidence. It gives you uh, in what it is. And I'm not saying that telling you how to parent or anything like that because there's no perfect parent, And um, you think that you're a perfect parent, or you tell people that you're the writer-producer of your own uh, fan fiction, okay? Because you're not, there's no perfect parent out there, okay? But, and that had nothing to do with anything. But as kids grow, they make mistakes, which, you know, they will, they wander. But there's something reassuring, remembering they made a choice. And so in that process, in that thinking, with it in the 90s, early 2000s, it was like this idea of entering into, Like they said the prayer, now they've entered into something, okay? And that's the way it kind of felt. And so I always felt like if I wasn't a part of it, I had to re-enter. That's why I said to say the prayer over and over again. Again, none of that's a bad thing. It's good. It kept it fresh on my mind. However, when I read the Gospels, it's not so much about entering in as it is about participating in. See, it's a change in mindset when it comes to following Christ. Because if it's just about an entering in as if Jesus is Willy Wonka and he gives us the golden ticket to get into the factory so we can have all the, the fun things, right? We kind of treat it that way. But if he's asking not, not just to enter in but to participate, it changes how we act now. Not we said a thing and we're going to do whatever we want until we hit the pearly gates, and then it's all, now we're in the party. No, no, no. It is now thing participating in something now. But when we relegate Jesus down to a fixed point, as if we've entered in, now we've made it, it really robs us of the whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth. That was a part of it, yes. Salvation, getting into heaven, uh, uh, getting back to our creator, that was all a part of it, but that was just a part, a great part, but a part of it. There's so much more to the reason why Jesus came to earth to be with us. So when we relegate it like that, it really robs us and it diminishes the purpose that Jesus holds in our part, in our hearts. And so now we've kind of hit this place to where we all kind of identify, we we say that we are believers, but we don't necessarily identify as participators. We call ourselves believers, and we put it on our dating profiles, and you say what kind of sect of Christian you are, and all these things. You put it on Instagram, you, you put your Bible picture so that everybody knows that you believe in God, right? And so there's no, no argument about that, but participating kind of changes the game. Are you a participator? So in the first century, these terms were synonymous. Being a believer and participator were together they knew that if you said you were a believer, you're participating. And if you didn't participate, they would say, you're not really a believer. You're just in this because you're around us. You're a bandwagon kind of person. So imagine if we did that today in our churches, if we divided them up and kind of said, well, what are, how are you participating? Oh, you're not really a believer. We would divide churches, denominations. Things would go crazy in AWOL uh, for all over the place. But for us, I don't know. I don't know. Like it, I don't know if we do this intentionally, but we do it easily. And what the game changer is in being a participator or just a believer is we look at Jesus as just this religious figure, but actually, we birthed a king. Now, when you say you birth a king, that changes things. It's not not a pastor wasn't birthed or a you know a, a CEO or a, some kind of leader. no this was a king it was very purposeful in the the terminology so establishing a king that came to establish an upside down others' first kingdom, a kingdom of empathy and love that participants then then because of they because they were participants we get to celebrate Christmas now so to realize that if they didn't participate in the way that they did then, just like in culture. Churches, like if we treated Jesus like we treat church now, like the whole manger scene would have had a smoke machine and a laser, you know, and lights and a guitar solo in the back. And, but it had nothing to do with that. We would have had them in the best hospital room. And, and that's all good and great, but that's not the purpose of the story. He was born in the lowliest of places. So after the first Christmas, everyone was anxious to get things back to normal, uh, just kind of like we are now about Christmas. And these, like We love Christmas, but then when Christmas is over, we're glad Christmas is over because it's like a Hail Mary for a month, right? Just craziness just happening. And it's not a terrible thing. It's a great thing. But everybody was anxious for it to return to normal. So in effort to make that happen, Caesar Augustus issued a, a decree. In Luke 2.1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So in this time, for that to happen, everybody had to go back to their hometown. Where they were born, wherever you're from, go back to your place of birth, um, which kind of set the stage of the first Christmas and kind of the chaos that happened. But in those days, there was no Christmas. It, was just, it just got cold. And then it got warm again. And then you realize winter is over, right? There, there wasn't this signifying day. There wasn't this buildup. All the markets weren't pushing Christmas tchotchkes on you and lights and, and telling you had to get a tree. And all That didn't happen like the four months before actually Christmas was beginning. Like that, that, that wasn't a thing. So they were not warned. They had no idea this new Christmas, this first Christmas was even coming. They were just kind of thrusted into it. Right There were a few that were watching, but it wasn't Christmas to them. it was just chaos. They were just thrown into this chaotic moment. So in the chaos, a child was born, a king was born, not a religious figure, a king. And according and then we know that because of what the angel told Mary in Luke 133, he told Mary uh, his kingdom will never end. Those were big words, his kingdom, right? So it'd be the same now as like we have a reigning president, right? And we have a term and all that kind of stuff. If I just all of a sudden started putting all over social media and I was a person of power and I said, hey, the new president is coming, they would be like, what? We haven't voted yet. There's no new president, right? There would be a signaling. It would be like, you know, it's fighting words, okay? There, there's new power coming around. And so when we do the, like it kind of reduced Jesus, we do this to a religious figure, but that wasn't the case in the first century. So far from Bethlehem, some educated, politically connected men searched because they knew the prophecies and they were looking for this, the king, the Messiah that was prophesied to come. They identified, so they would watch. The stars. They would watch, you know, what was happening in the sky, hoping that they would get a signal from God, because to them that was that was all God. It is, and they they would watch it. And then a new star appeared, and they go, "This is probably it. This is the indicator, the one that they've talked about. He is on his way." So, <clears throat> looking for divine messages, movements, planets, stars, all that, they find the new star, convince the signal of the new Jewish king. So they, had, uh, they, so they headed to the logical place that they thought that the king would be, Jerusalem, right? So in Matthew 2.1, we're going to pick up there. It says, The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Again, this is fighting words, right? Fighting words. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the problem is the Jews already had a king. They already had a king. And so for you to come and say, where is this new king? Gossip starts to spread. People begin to like, because you wouldn't dare say something like that then, right? Because it would threaten the leadership of that time. Uh, And so it, you know, it starts spreading all around, eventually gets back, probably gets back to Herod. Um, So it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. See, that's the gossip aspect. It wasn't just it got to the king, right, Herod. Um, All Jerusalem knew at some point, because those are big words. So the birth of the king, foretold in the stars, signaled a regime change. And at this time, Regimes changed so rapidly and so quickly and violently that just the utterance of this, the whispers of it, was scary. Not just for the king, but for people, right? Because that meant turmoil. That meant a struggle. So it threatened Herod's legacy. So in verse 4, it says, When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was born. Okay where he was to be born. So imagine that, right? So he pulls them all together and he says, hey guys, I just heard this thing floating around and I'm not threatened by it at all, right? That's not a big deal. Um, but uh, if, if if the Messiah could be anywhere, where do you think he could be, right? Where do you think this Messiah is? You know, trying to play it on, like not a big deal, right? He's like, hey, just where, where do you think he'd be? So the Messiah, the word in its meaning meant the anointed one. This is God's final king, the anointed and appointed Uh, by God. And the Greek term for Christ, as we learned last week, and Herod knew this, and we easily miss it, that Christ is not his name. Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's a title, all right? It meant king. It meant that he is the chosen king, which is completely threatening to the current king, all right? So it, it it was troublesome for him. So Herod asked the Magi where the Messiah was to be born. And they tell him like six miles from here, right? So judging on their calculations. So verse 5, In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He wanted to know not just where he was going to be, but what was the age. How old was this child king? So he could plan accordingly for it. He had reigned for 40 years. In this time, you don't stay king For 40 years by being nice and passive by saying oh it's all good you know all the time somebody tries to raise up against you right you were ruthless you were calculated you planned a lot you were decisive and proactive of maintaining your kingship so he wasn't just going to sit by and let it happen he acted casual about it because he needed some information he was a smart guy he ruled for a long time. Smart dude, right? And so he, but he's like, hey, where you, I mean, if you had to guess, where do you think this baby king is going to be, right? Where do you think he's going to end up? So um, he wasn't going to let it happen. And this is kind of where our lives, this is shocking to say, intersects with King Herod's, right? So like us, um, he had no problem seeking forgiveness from an invisible God. So most of his people were Jews. And being a smart ruler, you keep your constituents happy. You could lead by fear, but that will run out quicker. It's a lot easier to lead when they like you. So he embraced the Jewish community. He rebuilt their temple. He would seek for forgiveness and, and, all, and participate in their rituals and all the things that they would do to make them happy, essentially. He's a smart guy. But... There was a change. That's that's one thing, just making people happy and just going through the motions. But to submit himself, to surrender to a baby king, not going to happen. He is not going to do that. He will never do that, much less a baby any king. He would never do that. So this is where we attempt to keep heaven and earth conveniently separated, right? Right? We we try to keep them uh, separated. So after the first Christmas, this was no longer an option. So but prior, it was a lot of like what humans can do to sacrifice and please God and follow and follow all of these rules. And then when Jesus came to earth, he collided the two together. Heaven now is on earth with us. Now there is no separation. He's standing right there. He's watching you eat. He's watching you, how you talk to people, right? He is with us experiencing the same things. Heaven and earth ca- came in the form of a baby king. It collided, and he would establish his kingdom in this world and in the hearts of men and women, inviting everyone to participate. It was no longer just to say, I believe in. It was, I participate in because I believe. It changed things. So verse 8, continue on. It says, he sent them to Bethlehem to discover the location of the child king. And this is what he tells them in verse 8. It says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. This is kind of ironic and funny to me. It says, so that I may go and worship him. He was not going to worship that baby. (laughs) He was tricking them. He's saying, hey, guys, I want to go worship him, too. I'm cool. Don't worry about it. Just tell me where he is. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, continuing on, verse 9 says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. Um, Now, they knew where to go, and it was six miles uh, to Bethlehem. And continuing on, verse 9, it says, and the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed to a child as they would a king. They worshipped a child, a baby, as if they were worshipping a god. God had become flesh to dwell among this and to to demonstrate what he's like for one, and to also show that he's not far from being like us, that we are creating his image. And John tried to describe him. He tried really hard, but how do you describe Jesus when the world has seen nothing like him before? And he tried his best, and he did it in this way. He said, if I had to pick what Jesus is like, he is grace and truth, and not just a portion. He's full of both. And it it's still confusing to us today, to over 2,000 years later. We'll, we're still trying to understand what that means to be full of grace and truth, but he exemplified it. And how that carried out, it was love, true love, personified. That's, that was the best that he could do, how he could describe it. And continue on in verse 12, he said, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, talking about the Magi. And an, an angel also goes to Joseph and warns him, and uh, him and Mary flee to Egypt. Um, and so, verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, isn't that funny? He tried to trick them, but then the Magi tricked him, like he got outwitted. So um, a king that's full of pride and arrogance and doesn't want to lose, he was furious. That's what it tells in scripture: scriptures. He was furious. And we wonder why um, why what happens next happens in the christmas story cuz it's not exactly like he was born and everybody was cool no it was not the case um, this story is birth is is built around the birth of a king god sent his son to the world to establish a different kingdom and when you try to start a new kingdom under a new king thems is fighting words Like that that established, that drew a line in the sand. Something is about to happen. Continue on in verse 16. So because of that, because he was furious and he realized he was outwitted uh, by the Magi, he was tricked by them, he says, And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Can you imagine the generals and soldiers that came together? He's like, all right the new king, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go kill all the boys. And they're like, what? All of them? We're not going to have any soldiers or anything if we do that. Okay, can we narrow it down? Like, like are we talking like age eight and down? Or I mean, what, what, what is it? And he's like, no, no, no. I know about around the time, like eight, two and under. I want you to go do this. And they're like, are you sure? But it happened. They did it. He gave the order and they went out. And here's the truth, and this is bad things have been happening to good and innocent people for a long time. Ever since sin has entered this world, that has been happening. And this next part is a hard pill to swallow for followers because we feel like if it isn't entering into something, we've separated ourselves. But when Jesus came to the earth, he crashed it all back together, earth and heaven. So There is no escaping. So It's not an entering in to escape, but it's an entering in to participate in what's happening in this world. Yeah. Our faith does not require us to look away from cruelty, injustice, and suffering. It's a part of the story woven into the f- fabric of our King, yeah. of, our, of our Savior. Bad things happen to good people doesn't contradict what we believe. At the end of Jesus' life, the worst possible thing happened to the best person that has ever walked this earth. That's a part of the story. And as Jesus' followers, we're not required to look away. We're required to look at, to look at the cruelty in this world, to look at the suffering, to look at the injustice, not to hide away from it, but to approach it and be, and be involved in whatever it is. And that's sometimes hard because it's uncomfortable. But this, in this story, it reminds us when we see the cruelty, injustice, the suffering, it reminds us of why God sent his son. He sent a king to lead and instruct us in a different way of living. It's the reason God sent Jesus. It's the reason why we have Christmas, We don't have Christmas just so we can sell things and have a great year and give presents to one another. That's a great part of it, and that's fun, and we enjoy it, and we indulge in it as well. But however, the Christmas story is not just candy canes and and frolicking and, and, and elves on the shelves and all this stuff. It is something bigger than that, much bigger. It's a reminder to us that we just shouldn't just have to be okay with what's happening here on earth, that we are called to participate to make it better to help, to be a part, to do what Jesus has done for us. And so Herod, in his refusal to bow to the baby king, he ended up becoming a footnote in the creation story and the rise of the one and only king, Jesus. So about 40 years after Christmas, uh, that first Christmas, the Gentile world felt the tension between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God that Jesus introduced to us. So more than 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria, a city in Antioch, 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 a new term had been coined in response to this disturbing news. He named them, and and they saw this, and they named them because they saw this not as a, a here in America, and I'm, I haven't done the research, but I'm, I'm willing to bet we're probably one of the only nations that, that do this, but that we have a, a separation of church and state, right? And, but this was not a thing then. Most of humanity does not know a separation of religion and government. It's intertwined. It's together because it's a movement of people. And how people believe affect how they serve And how they worship and what they call themselves, like how they operate in their country. So it was important who they served, who they called their God, who they worshiped, right? Because if it contradicted the government, that meant the government had less power. And I don't know a single government that wants less power. They want more and more and more. So they saw what was happening in Antioch, yeah, I did it again, Antioch (laughs) as a political movement. And that is surprising for us cuz we know it to be separate but this is the truth majority of humanity it's a political movement so Greeks and Romans uh, were choosing to follow a new king they referred to him as Christus a, an anointed one it was disturbing on several fronts for the government at that time and anybody else surrounding them that this king that Rome executed he's dead But now people weren't just calling him a king, they were calling him a god that they served more than their living king. That threatened the pride and arrogance of any king. But unlike pagan gods, he did not demand sacrifice. His followers believed he was the sacrifice for sin. He was the king who demanded something else, only what an actual king would demand, obedience and allegiance, and that was threatening. That was political to them. So in pagan religion, the secular and spiritual were separated realms, and the gods, they didn't care what gods you worshiped in that time as long as they didn't threaten how you served the government. How you served the king, the living king in that time, whoever in life. They didn't get, you could worship whatever, and they did that. They worshiped whatever God. They wanted to have a baby, they worshiped the fertility God. They wanted riches, they, they worshiped the riches God, you know, whatever it may be. If they wanted a yacht, they worshiped the yacht God. I, I don't know. Well, whatever it was, they worshiped that. As long as they didn't threaten their taxes and how they served their government, right? But this changed things. As long as they obeyed Caesar, they could worship whatever God they wanted. But in Antioch, there was a group from who no longer worked that way. Divine and secular had collided for them with, just through a Jewish rabbi. And citizens in Antioch, weren't, they weren't changing uh, uh, religions. They were changing who they served. And what they saw was a political stance. So they changed their allegiance. A king who invented, invited them to a new way of living In others' first way. His followers would give without expectation of being paid back was confusing. And it's still confusing today that they would give and they would serve and not expect anything in return. They would ignore all the cultural distinctions. They would resist the system. There were no more distinctions between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free. Everybody was on the same playing field. There was equality there in their approach to God. There was nothing holding them back. In that time, that was power, and they didn't like that. They wanted to be able to hold people lower than others because it made them feel more powerful, but this kingdom... This new government denied that, but they took it even further further than that. They bound themselves by oaths not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, to carry one another's burdens and forgive people. This was not normal then. This was a game changer. They would gather the first day of each week before work. So imagine that. If this was, like, it would be more like if this was a Monday, and it's like 7 a.m., and you all come here to worship and have church and then go to work, right? That would be totally different. We would have no attendance. Uh, and, but they would gather not to sacrifice to their God, but to sing songs and to show gratitude for the sacrifice their king, their God king, had made for them. They ignored the cultural distinctions of all that, resisted that system, So there was nothing holding them back. They were joint heirs of the kingdom. This was different. This was a game changer. So in the most surprising at all, their king insisted, their God king insisted that they submit to the governing authorities, which is weird. But that's exactly what he did. So this wasn't a a religion. It was a revolution. But what do you call these people in this revolution? We find in Acts, Luke tells us. He says, "The disciples, not soldiers, not not mercenaries, not nothing, but disciples." And the followers of Jesus were end up being called Christians in Antioch, and this meant as uh, part, you know, participants in Christ. So they saw this as a political movement. So in the first century, Christian was a political term, not a religious one. It was not branded Christians to differentiate them from Zeusians or uh, or what's the other one? Uh, Jupiterians, you know, whatever it may be. That wasn't the case. It was meant to distinct them from something that was governmental that was political and so the term was based on latin uh, political terminology and they had switched parties and eventually to be a christian would mark you as anti-roman and so because of that they were persecuted they were hunted they were sought after to be erased because they were threatening the government so the folks in antioch heard the news, understood it, and changed the allegiance based on the magi and what they were told. And so they followed and participated. They chose to worship. They chose to change their allegiance. And so Herod understood this and what was at stake and what was being resisted. So he took it into measures in his own hands. So Jesus was far, was more than just a forgiver of sin. He was much more than a religious icon. He was truly a king to these people. And Jesus was born a king. He is the king. It, he is the intersection of have heaven and earth, God personified. And so the question that Hannah asked us last week, and I asked you again today, is not is just He your religious leader, but is He your king? Yeah. Do you serve Him as your king? Is, he's my king? Have we chosen him as our king? Um, because forgiven people, and this is going to be weird to hear, forgiven people didn't change the world. People who forgive change the world. Catch that. It's not just that we are forgiven, it's the fact that we actively participate in forgiving today because we forgive because they, forgave the world was changed the followers changed the world participators did and shaped western civilization they were men and women with holy discontent with how the world was they were not satisfied with how people were being treated they embraced jesus kingdom ethic and lived and exported it where it took hold of the world and made it a better and kind of safer place it changed the dynamic and not made it so much about self, which goes against our nature. It made it more about others. Jesus is more worried about how, less how you treat yourself and how you treat others. And that, it was a game changer. So I would say do you want your city, your community, your church, the people, your home, do you want it to be better? You got to change the game. You got to change the script. Do you want your life to not to be life giving and not life draining? Do you want when people come to you and they say, how are you doing? And you'd say, oh, I'm living the dream. That's code for I'm not doing well. Okay. (laughs) If you really want to be able to tell people life is great because of Jesus, because I serve in the other's first kingdom. Are you willing to change your parties and shift your allegiance to submit to the king who came to reverse the order of things. Submit to the king who invites us to love one another as he loved us. John, who knew the king, summed it up best. In John 1, 4-5, he said this. He said, in him was life. And that life was a light to all mankind. When he says all mankind, he doesn't mean just men, males. He means everybody. Women grace, creed, wherever you're born, how you were born, how you came to this world, poor, rich, uh, whatever land you came from, all mankind. He was the light for all of them. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It didn't then. It hasn't now, and it never will. So after the first Christmas, Christmas wasn't over. When the chaos settled, it really wasn't settled. What Jesus did was going to change the game for forever, and it was just the beginning. A king was snuck into the world for you. Is he your king? He has invited us to participate in his kingdom. He's invited us to change our allegiance, to bow, submit, to follow, and to participate. He's invited you to be a part of of his kingdom. Not just say that you believe in his kingdom, but actually be a part, a working part of his kingdom, a participant. So this Christmas, we celebrate the birth, the real birth of a real king. So last week Hannah again presented the question, is he your king? And I want to build that off of that this week. So not only is he he your king, but have you chosen to participate in the kingdom where you identify him as your king? There's a big difference between being a believer and a participator. Would your actions, and how, this is an easy way to tell. If somebody, a stranger came up to you and you asked them, or I mean not a stranger, I mean someone that you knew, that had seen your actions, and you say, who do I serve? Who is my king? And they can't identify as Christian or Jesus in you. That's a struggle. That might be something you have to identify in yourself. So if you haven't yet, take the opportunity to choose to say, I'm not just a believer, but I participate in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to be a part of this kingdom. Or that it wasn't just a destination where you say, "I just believe in me and it'll all kind of work out. But we actually get to be a part of the story. We get to participate in bringing heaven to earth. That every day we wake up, we get to be an ambassador for our king, our ultimate king, the king of kings. And it's not to disrespect or overthrow kingdoms, but it's to lift up and love and to support to ultimately bring people back to the one and only ultimate king, and that's you. So, Lord, if there's anything in our life, Jesus, if there's anything going on um, that is distracting us, that's keeping us, that, it's, that we're serving it rather than serving you, I pray that you would light those things up. Lord, if there's areas that we're just believing and we're not participating, help us to see the opportunities to participate in the kingdom and not just make a declaration. And Lord, as a as a community, as a church, I pray that we never, never lose our our spirit of wanting to participate, even though it gets messy. And no matter how messy it gets, Lord, we at Village Heights will never stop participating. We will continue to push forward the kingdom, the one and true kingdom, and that's yours. So Lord in this Christmas season. Help, help us to see that. Help us not to get distracted by everything that's going on, but to continue in the legacy of bringing heaven to earth in your name. I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.